0: Hey everybody, welcome to TCP Talks with Jonathan Baker and Justin Brodley from The Cloud Pod. In this series we're bringing you interviews with the best and brightest leaders and heroes from the tech and cloud industry.
1: Well, let's uh, let's do it. Our guest, Forrest Brazil, is here. You want to introduce yourself, Forrest? Hey, Justin,
2: Jonathan. It's great to be on. My name is Forrest Brazil. I am a, a senior manager at a Cloud Guru, which is a cloud learning provider, cloud education platform. We've Got about two million students on the platform today that are learning all things Azure, AWS, Google Cloud. Uh, I'm also an AWS Serverless Hero, which is just a fancy way of saying I'm an unpaid shill for AWS, uh, and I talk about serverless technologies a lot, um, but I'm very passionate about the cloud community, very passionate about sharing and learning, and I'm certainly excited about doing that with you today.
1: That's excellent. Uh, I can relate. I'm an unpaid speaker at the Serverless Hero event, so I, I get... There you go. That's memory. the next level, man. You're a hero to the heroes. I, apparently so. I, uh, I went and basically told everyone that cloud lockin's a myth, and people erupted in applause, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you know looks... your audience. You're preaching to the choir. Exactly, sure. exactly. Well, you know, and A Cloud Guru has been a big, uh, I'm a big fan of them. They helped me get certified uh, for my pro certification for DevOps and as well as our day job uses it quite heavily uh, for all of our Amazon training. So we've been big fans of A Cloud Guru. So we are super happy to have you here on the show today. Awesome. Well, it's wonderful to be here.
0: Jonathan, do you have anything you want to jump into? Oh, I was just going to mention I um, I did my Solutions Architect Associate. I decided once we'd arrived at reInvent last year that I wanted into the uh, the, the club room to get the coffee and the free gifts and things. So I, I jumped on, did, ran through the training in an hour and a half or something and passed the exam the next day. So
1: nice. pretty good. <laughs> there you go. It was really the fact that uh, Ryan and I just harassed him mercilessly because uh, both Ryan and I got certified and we were giving Jonathan such a bad time. He was like, I yeah. can do this too. Yep. Yeah.
2: It's I'm like, impressed uh, you didn't go for the lowest hanging fruit and just get the certified cloud practitioner. You went and got like an actual technical cert. Well, there's, there's limits.
1: <laughs> and Jonathan doesn't do anything half-assed, as we typically find out. So he's like, no, no, I got to go at least for the, the bare minimum requirement. So There you so. go.
0: It had to be something useful at least. And something I know it could pass. So <laughs> How did you get into the industry? I always like hearing people's backstories.
2: Yeah, well, you know, in some ways, it's it's a really typical story. I went to college, I got a computer science degree, and then I started working for company called Infor out of college, which uh, is a, a large SaaS company, a competitor to Oracle and SAP, and kind of came up through the ops world there. And in other ways, it's, it's not so typical because I came relatively late to uh, programming, relatively late to computers. It really wasn't until I, I got to college that I got serious about that. Um, and so I, I, I bring kind of a um, more of a right-brained I think approach to computer science. My background was always in music, and it was in other things like that. Um, and it turns out there's there's a lot of room for some creativity in uh, in computers, and, and uh, that's that's what I've enjoyed bringing throughout my career. But I, like I said, I came up through ops. I've been a, a DBA. I've been a sysadmin. I've been a front-end, back-end web developer. Um, I have been a quote-unquote cloud architect. Uh, and I've I've managed teams that do that. I've been a consultant to companies large and small that do that. And then at A Cloud Guru now, I'm I'm more sort of on the um, the side of the house where I help to tell the story of what ACG is doing. Um, but I still stay very plugged into uh, what customers are doing and and what customers need in terms of migrating to the cloud and adopting the cloud. I think that's a fascinating subject to talk about.
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the very first times I. It was introduced to you on Twitter. Was uh, very one of your many musical talents. <laughs> so I think <laughs> even today I saw a new one where you announced uh, all 168 uh, Amazon services and songs. So you know uh, those yes. are always appreciated and uh, enjoyable in these uh, dark days of COVID to uh, get some humor
2: <laughs> in these <laughs> uncertain times. Yes. Well, there's I don't know that it's exactly 168. It's it, there is no one who can give you a true number for how many AWS services there are because there's no one way to count them. But uh, that was the number that I came up with after throwing out any things that I just didn't want to sing. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did you do comprehend? Uh, was that, that was comprehend
2: is in there? Yes. Yeah, uh, nice. Even some services that are just announced uh, but not released yet, like uh, fraud detector and a few like that. Nice.
1: Um, so, as you think about you know your role um, at A Cloud Guru and really starting to help teams and companies make this pivot to cloud native and cloud transformation, where do you see A Cloud Guru helping, and how do you see you know your role as a as an advocate for cloud, you know, helping companies make this transition?
2: Yeah. Well, it's really interesting talking about ACG. I, I've, I've not been there super long, although I've had a long time relationship with them, much like you. I was a student before I, I worked there and, and had used them to, to pass some certain courses. Um, and of course, that's where they came from. They came out of that direct to individual type of space and, and we're selling certification training to, to individuals like you and me. Um, and it's only been in the last couple of years that they've, they've really um, uh, started to become very, very influential in the Uh, business side of of cloud training and really modern tech skills in general. Um, And that's happening because as we get to what I would describe as the second phase of cloud adoption at a lot of large companies where they've, they've had that first phase where they said, OK, we can just throw a bunch of stuff up in AWS and that'll save us some money, right? All of a sudden, they realize, no, long term, that doesn't save you money. Um, if you're running the, you know, uh, your, your cloud infrastructure like you were running your, your data center, you're going to find that's very expensive. You're going to find that you're constantly fighting the same kind of fires that you were fighting in the data center, that the uh, cloud knowledge and expertise that you hoped you would sort of get by osmosis is not um, occurring, at least. Not at the same speed that you thought it would, uh, because you're just letting it sit there. You don't have any active plan to get people upskilled and turned around, and so that's what a cloud guru does. Uh, we work with thousands of businesses now. We work with, I think, most of the Fortune 500, and we sit down with them and uh, help them figure out how to take their uh, entire organization, their entire workforce, from zero to you know having that baseline level of what we call cloud fluency. Everybody speaking the same language of cloud, and that's when we see the real uh, cloud adoption wins start to happen.
1: Yeah, every company has you know, employees who have different ways of learning. And so as much as I'm a read-the-manual guy, Jonathan's a read-the-manual guy, uh, you know, there are so <laughs> many people who you know, need more hands-on. They need different ways of learning. And so A Cloud Guru, in my opinion, is one of those great ways to give you different options. And you know, maybe you want video, maybe you want self-paced, maybe you want labs. Those are all available to you. And I think that's really meeting the students where they're at is really important.
2: I think you're exactly right, and it's interesting you say that about being a read-the-manual kind of guy. I'm the same way. I was always one of those people who thought of myself as, you know, I'll just figure it out on my own. I'll Google. I don't need this amount training. And honestly, for me and I think for you, that's that's probably true, except once you actually become a person on these central cloud teams – I'm making the quote marks in the air here – you discover that you do need – that training, really more so than anybody else in the company, but it's not for you. It's for the rest of the organization. Because if they don't get that, then they'll come to you with every low-level question. What's an EC2 instance? What's an S3 bucket? How do I log into the AWS console by typing my access and secret key into the password box? You know, And then you burn out, and you're overwhelmed with support tickets, and then you leave because you can't deal with it anymore. So you need training, and I need training as much as anybody else does, if only as a way to scale myself.
0: How do you ensure that people don't just learn to pass the exam and they actually get Valuable, you know, information that they can apply to real-world problems. That's a really
2: good question, um, and I, I think a lot of it comes from, you know, the the certification exam is a great what we call a proxy for cloud skills. I mean, how exactly do you measure objectively what's what someone's you know skills are, and, and an exam is one way to do that. But a lot of times, I think just going through the the learning itself, and especially if you have a hands-on component, which ACG is is doing uh, much better now that we've acquired Linux Academy and brought all their wonderful hands-on labs and, and Cloud Playground tools into the product. Um, once you are able to get in and, and uh, get your hands cloudy, as I like to say, and build on those things, in some ways it almost doesn't matter whether you actually sit the certification exam or not. You know, All of the actual learning is, is covered as you're going through the material. Um, and the, the high level exposure to those services is, is what you're getting. So I would say if you're chasing a metric of how many certs you're gonna get, you need to be very clear that you understand what the limitations of that are. Um, but there is there is something hugely valuable in saying, okay, we're going to take a specified set of of um, cloud services and a specified set of of knowledge areas that you need to cover. And once you get through this, you will know that you haven't missed or have a huge gap in some top level area. I mean, and that's so easy to do, right? As I'm sitting on one team and I'm touching one technology all the time, I could go two, three, four years and never know anything about networking AWS because all I'm doing is, is databases, right? Or never know anything about compute because all I'm doing is storage. And going through the, the CERT training prep really helps you to avoid those blind spots that will keep you from speaking effectively to the other teams that you work with.
0: I'm going to ask you a really controversial question now. Oh, I've been on Twitter since most mostly active since we started the podcast a couple of years ago. Okay. But uh, I see this huge pushback from the development movement, all the, all the software engineers on Twitter, against things like technical interviews or code challenges mm-hmm. and things like this. Working for an organization whose job it is to teach people new skills and then to, to help people mm-hmm. prove that they have those skills by gaining certifications, how do you feel about that sort of resentment towards technical testing in order to... Uh, sort of assert that you are talented or something?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And you may have noticed I've been doing something for the past few months that I call the cloud resume challenge, uh, which was designed specifically to get around this problem. Because as you pointed out, the cert is great, but hiring managers usually want to see a little bit more. They want to see that you've actually gotten hands-on, that you're self-motivated, that you can learn quickly. Everybody says they want to hire people that can learn quickly. Um, And the cert doesn't really tell you that. So you need something in addition to it. Uh, So the cert gets you, you know, the baseline and then you need to to stand out. And uh, what I've found seems to work really well is if you can show some spec-based projects that you've done, if you can show some portfolio stuff, and that's what the Cloud Resume Challenge does. We've had uh, several hundred people that have worked on it now, um, and they they go through, and the, essentially the challenge is you create your resume, and, and I'll share it out with as many hiring managers as I can, but there's a few qualifications. The resume's got to be written in HTML and CSS. It's got to be deployed in a static S3 bucket, and then you know, you've got to do some uh, CICD and some source control and write a little API to do a visitor counter, and before you know it, you've done this pretty much soup to nuts AWS backend DevOps project and touched an awful lot of the technologies that hiring managers care about. You've done DNS, you've done certs, you've done all these things. And uh, we, we found it to be really successful. We've had a number of people that have gotten hired, uh, even complete career changers, uh, which is amazing at the best of times, but certainly in a pandemic when you know there's not a ton of jobs lying thick on the ground to be had. So we've kind of proved that out. And um, I'm happy to announce on this podcast, this has not been said publicly before, but we will be bringing that challenge format in-house at A Cloud Guru. And we'll be running it free on a monthly basis, pulling in some of our uh, other instructors to help get people those project-based skills that we need. So we definitely see that it's important, and we want to make sure that people are equipped with all the right tools in their toolbox to do that.
1: That's awesome, because I think, uh, you know, I saw you doing it, and it was kind of late in the game when I saw it. I was like, well, you know, I could do some of this, but, you know, I was thinking about you, and I was like, how does forest uh, scale?
2: yeah exactly and it it got to a point where i couldn't do it anymore yeah it was it was way beyond my ability to keep up with and we had some amazing mentors in the uh the group people like eric hammond and and cory quinn who had volunteered their time to help talk to people and that was great but it did reach a point where i had reviewed so many github repositories that i was i was seeing yaml before my eyes when i went to sleep and i needed to take a step back so we're going to pull in some other people and make sure everybody keeps getting the help they need in a sustainable way
1: it's interesting a lot of times um You know, I do a lot of hiring in my jobs. Jonathan does a lot of interviewing. I look less and less at technical and more and more about aptitude and, Mm, you know, passion and what they're looking for, you know, because ultimately if they've been at a company for 10 years as a Java developer, they probably know Java. (laughs) I don't need to (laughs) test them on Java. Um, I really want to understand more about how they approach a problem, how they troubleshoot, how they think about these things. And that's where, you know, it's, it's an interesting challenge of like, how do we build a way to interview that that's fair and not subjective and more... Uh, you know, sorry, a little more, you know, focus on the facts versus, you know, just my interpretation of how they did. And so that's, that's an interesting challenge that I know I strive for in my hiring, but, uh, you know, anything like these type of things, like the resume challenge, which are super helpful in just giving you an idea of like, Hey, why did you do it that way? Like, what was your thought process? And you can ask those questions versus, you know, trying to get them to work for your company for free for a day, <laughs> which is a terrible model too.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm curious, Justin, do you have any, um, uh, sort of approaches that you take to, to interviewing that you found to be really helpful at, you know identifying folks who are have that aptitude that you're talking about any anything specifically that you look for or is that giving away too many secrets
1: <laughs> no i mean there are a couple of things um, so typically i ask questions around locus of control like you know when you see a problem how do you approach the problem you know are you looking for authorization to make action or do you take action on your own and so that's kind of a very simplified version of locus of control um, the other one is I, t- I look for people who are somewhat self-reflective. So one of the big sets of questions I ask about is, tell me about a big project you were part of. And how did you get picked for the team? What was your contribution? What re- were you seen as an expert of something in this part of the team? What awards did you get for the team? And then the, really the most telling question is, if you were to rate yourself on a 1 to 10 of how you did in that project, mm. how would you rate yourself? And then typically I ask them, how would you be one point better? Um, and that typically gives me a really good insight into, hey, how they perceive themselves and how they were perceived in the project. It gives me an idea of, you know, were they just a person in the project doing the work or were they a leader in the project? And then number two, it gives me an idea of how self-reflective they are. Because people who are typically highly motivated are also very self-reflective. And so, you know, if I have someone comes and says I was a ten, <laughs> and then you know, like, well there wasn't anything you could do better. that's a bit that's a, that's a tell. as well as you know if you know I'm a seven or a six and you say I could you know get to seven and they don't have a good answer, that's also very interesting too because that means they haven't really looked at how they perform in group settings and that kind of thing. So that those are two that I use. Um, but you know it depends on the candidate and kind of where the direction the conversations go and, and those type of things
2: the reason I like that question is I I think it's not the sort of thing that you can BS your way through, you know, you you have to actually slow down and uh, it's going to be immediately apparent if you're, if you're not going deep in that answer. Um, And and that's what I remember when I was doing a lot of interviewing, which I I still do a lot of interviewing, but uh, when I was interviewing for more technical roles, it was always a um, frustration to see people who, you know, it's like, I just want you to say, you don't know if you don't know, it's fine if you don't know. Right. But it's, that's, that's the real red flag is when people just kind of start talking and, and not saying anything.
1: Yeah, the one question I used to love a lot was, um, you know, go to a browser and type in Google.com and
2: oh, yeah. tell classic. me what happens,
1: <laughs> right? And, and you know, now there's a GitHub repo that gives you like in more right. detail than even I could give you on <laughs> how that works down to
2: like the the butterfly wings on the opposite side of the world type level of detail. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Like you know, when the key contact I me mean, makes contact with the connection on the keyboard, it sends an electrical pull, and you're like, okay, this is a yeah, level yeah, yeah. of ridiculousness. But you know, the problem with that question is that. You know, if it's a developer, I don't know that I care that they don't know anything beyond a get and a put and those basic things. Where mm-hmm. it's an SRE person, I actually do care that they know about a TCP handshake. And so the problem is it becomes a bit more, you know, subjective to the role. And so it was less it was harder to rank candidates based on that. And what you really want to do in hiring is you want to be able to have very clear articulations of how you can compare and contrast them. Because when we get into a roundtable at the end. If I have all these subjective questions that are interpretation based, then I can't actually yeah. rank them, and I can't actually make a decision based on skill set um, or fit and culture and those sort of things. So you have to be careful about these questions and how you do them, as well as that you're not bringing in bias into the process too. You know, either um, sexual preference biases or racial biases in the way you you write the job description sure. or the way that you ask the question. And so uh, it's very it's interesting time to hire, <laughs> especially with <laughs> a lot of the social stuff that's going on in the world too. Um, and it's an area that I always strive to is try to be as impartial as possible, but make sure that we're being factual and that we're having the right way to rank and, and compare uh, candidates because everyone's unique. And so how do you get that down to a system that you can
0: use? I ask a similar question. In fact, I ask the same question, but I, I don't use it in order to score the candidate as much as I use it to help me guide my own set of questions. So if they clearly know the sort of low end of the stack and networking but not much in the application things, I sort of trust that that they spoke authoritatively about – you know, switches and routers and some other things. And then I'll, I'll spend more time focusing on the other areas to sort of get the most value out of the 45 minutes. But it's, I mean, very few candidates have bombed it completely, but it's um, it's very interesting because it's such a well-known question that so many candidates come completely unprepared for a question. I mean, OSI is taught in uh, computer science. You'd think it would be on top of people's list, but often not.
2: Yeah, that's right. I, it's interesting you, you talk about what's taught in computer science. I mean, my uh, I, I have a a bachelor's and a master's in computer science. And, and in both cases, there wasn't really much time spent on, on what you call software engineering, which I think is correct. That's not what a computer science degree should be. But at the same time, that means that your average CS grad doesn't know how to put a system together um, especially a distributed system, and uh, that's something to keep in mind as you're as you're looking at folks.
0: Yeah, it's a weird disparity between people who go to a university for computer science and then people who have kind of come up through the ops ranks, mm. and you get yeah. networking guys who know all about the OSI model and TCP and you know, everything like that, but they, they they couldn't work out a bandwidth calculation because they didn't do computer science. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. It's 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 a weird. It's, it's, we almost need a, a sort of a. a a more hands-on approach to computer science and a, and a more theoretical approach to <laughs> make me in the middle somewhere.
1: <laughs> you know, I, at my last job before my current day job, you know, we we hired a lot of new college grads. And, you know, we basically put them in a six-week boot camp to teach them how to actually write applications because yep. <laughs> they didn't yep. get that in their computer science degrees. I mean, you yeah, know, we were getting people with computer science or computer system admin, MIS degrees, and they, they don't have any other context. But you can tell you about an algorithm all day long, which is great. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they can't tell you how to build a mobile app. They can't tell you how to build a web app. And so that's what we spend a lot of time training them on. And then even at the current job, we had a we had a class of new college grads. And, you know, same challenge. You know, you have to teach them. You have to take them through the process. You have to teach them all the basics. And you get to answer really fun questions like, what's a, what's paid time off? What's, what's PTO? I don't, I don't really know. There <laughs> so, you go. And then, you know, it's, it's fun uh, to deal with new college grads. one Actually, a highlight of what I've done in my career is, is really helping new college grads. Uh, but it's, it's so funny cause you forget how basic some stuff is that you just take for granted that a new college grad doesn't understand at all.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's really interesting that you bring that up as I, I think about the things that surprised me the most, uh, especially in the first few years after I got out of college, I somehow coming out of a CS program had led me to this expectation that my jobs in programming would look like sitting in front of a computer and writing algorithms for 40 hours a week. And for years, I was like, what's wrong with me? Or what's wrong with this job where this is not an accurate description of what's happening? Like, except in very short spurts, I'm really not spending a preponderance of my time head down writing code. It's all, you know, uh, it's negotiating with people, right? And it's figuring out requirements and it's writing the same line of code and then deleting it because it turns out the business requirement changed. You know, uh, so I I don't know if there's a better way to prepare people for that, but I, I do know that we're not going to solve that. In this conversation.
0: One of my favorite interview questions, I ask everybody who says they've got years of experience with with AWS, have you ever made a feature request? And if you haven't made a feature request, pick a service and tell me how you'd improve it.
2: That is a great interview question. Are you asking me this question? Do you want me to give you a feature request? Okay. (laughs) Well, now you're calling me on the spot, man. I have made feature requests before, um, some of which have been released. Um, It's some. it's always dumb because you start to say it out loud and it's like, it's like explaining a joke or telling someone your dream. It's like, you just had to be, it was better in my head, you know, <laughs> uh, for, for a lot of these features. Cause you, you had to be so far down a specific rabbit hole. But uh, the, the one that comes to mind, um, relatively recently is I, I really really wanted to be able to pass environment variables to a code build job from a code pipeline config <laughs> for a long time like that's the level of feature request that i'm talking about right yep and uh you, you couldn't do that for a long time and i remember requesting it on twitter and i was so happy when they got back to me and said that they had added it um that just made my day for the stupid little problem that i was having so you know it, but again value of twitter right they do listen
1: yeah, it's it's fun, some of the things that you request, because uh, we actually finally forced them to give us a list of all the PFRs we've made over the last few years, and nice. we're looking at them, we're like, what were we doing when we asked for that feature? Because I don't even remember. <laughs> they're just, you know, yeah. at the moment, they're in the weeds, and you're like, okay, I have this exact problem, and I have this need, and... And sometimes you know, when you take another look at them you know, years later or months later, it's like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what I was thinking at that time. But I'm sure it was valuable at the time. I, one more thing that comes to
2: mind, I, I remember giving a talk um, – it's more than three years ago now at Serverless Conf Austin – and this was just after Step Functions had come out. And I, I had been using Step Functions a lot and had a whole bunch of feature requests for it. And if you go back and look at that talk on YouTube now, there's a slide that lists a whole bunch of things that I really wanted to see in Step Functions. Among them were things like um, parallel workflows and some form of a callback uh, mechanism. And there, it's like five or six other things. Um, and if you go back and, and look at that slide now, every one of those things, with the exception of maybe one or two, has been released by the Step Functions team in the three years intervening. So they do listen. The services do get better. Again, good reason to adopt right and just let it take you where it's going
1: well good um, you know being a serverless hero I'm sure has its its ups and downs uh, maybe you can <laughs> tell me a little bit about you know how you see the evolution of serverless in the last few years it's, it's kind of we kind of continue coming to a point now where the really articulated very clear you know 30 seconds of transaction time you know get out of this not you know don't deal with stateful data that's kind of going to an era of more stateful data more long-running transactions in Fargate and serverless and all the different areas that they're doing in this. How do you see that kind of changing the way that we're thinking about serverless in the industry?
2: I think that the biggest trend that I'm seeing and experiencing is that the underlying principles espoused by the serverless community, many of which sounded radical in like the 2015, 2016 timeframe, and I'm talking principles like uh, you know being able to scale to zero and ideally being abstracted and, and owning less things that you shouldn't be worrying about, those principles are taking over and they're becoming common sense. They're becoming received wisdom in the larger cloud community. When I look at people who are going from the data center to the cloud today, uh, they are thinking about the cloud as something that's going to take undifferentiated heavy lifting away from them rather than thinking about it as another place to run the same kind of workloads they were already running. They perceive that the value of the cloud is at a higher level and it's more abstract in a way that I I didn't see five years ago. So I I think the underlying serverless principles are winning. I think the term serverless is losing. And I I kind of suspect that we won't hear it as much. I think that those principles will be folded into some other more generic slash meaningless term. Could there be a more meaningless term than serverless? Maybe cloud native. Maybe that's the word that will be used. Um, but, you know, either way, I think the underlying principles are, are winning. Um, it's just a matter of what we're going to call it. And I think eventually we're just going to call it good modern architecture.
1: It's an interesting perspective. How do you feel containers fit into that strategy? If you know, Is it just more good programming at that point?
2: It's, you know, I mean, you know as well as I do that there's this massive, massive world of legacy apps Mm -hmm. out there um, that need to be managed better than they are today, running on bare metal in a dank data center that is vulnerable to weather and fireworks and all the other great data center horror stories that we hear. Uh, And containers are a great step up out of that. For a Greenfield application where I had total control over what I was choosing, I can't imagine building it on containers unless I had some weird constraint, uh, you know, or some, some weird thing that serverless is not well suited for around latency or extreme cold start or something like that. Um, but, you know, if if I am dealing with significant legacy constraints, which let's be real, 80% of us are, right, who are actually building real stuff and putting it in production, then yeah, containers are a great choice. I don't think they're going anywhere. If anything, I think that we're going to see better cloud services for abstracting the management of containers. But I And we are. I mean, there's so many you know managed services on top of Kubernetes because it's a nightmare to run if you have to run it yourself. And uh, I, I believe that we'll continue to see folks uh, using containers as a development um, abstraction and pushing more and more of the uh, responsibilities below that to the cloud. What do you think?
1: I, I agree with you. I think we're seeing you know serverless and containers kind of starting to merge in some ways with knative mm-hmm. and some of these other technologies. You know, what's the difference between a container that runs all the time versus a container I spin up for a transaction and then shut down? You know that's mm-hmm. basically what a lambda function is. Um so you know, I think you're right. I think it's it's going to be, you know, we're seeing them come more together than they are going to be apart, and I think that's mm. where it goes back to your comment about good modern architecture, or cloud native, or whatever we're going to use in this new world. Uh, you know, I, I definitely think there's still a lot of a lot of mystique around serverless that, that people don't really understand, and mm. a lot of it's yeah. from. And I think I talked about this actually at the Serverless Heroes event you know i think there's teams that have tried serverless early and they got burned by sharp edges or things where they did they were not taking into consideration those legacy uh, restrictions and so then they you know they basically write off lambda in a big way or they write off serverless in a big way and say oh that doesn't work for us it doesn't work for this company and it's like well that's not true it you ran into some edge cases, you ran into some things. And so how how do you kind of get a developer who's maybe tried this path and said, oh, no, that's not for me, how do you get them back into it?
2: Back into serverless after that time when they had a bad experience with it five years ago kind mm-hmm. of thing. I, and I've definitely talked to people that have done that. Um, and, and I think one of the powerful things that AWS in particular has done, and I, I'm not saying other cloud providers haven't done this, but AWS is what I know best. One of the powerful things that they've done is they have chosen to Um, Even when it's maybe not the most... Critical feature in the world in terms of the value that it provides to the service, they've chosen to roll out services from a customer obsession perspective that smooth these conversations. And the one I'm thinking about right now is the addition of um, VPC ability to uh, Lambda, where they, for a long time, that was something very slow, and it took what 10, 15 seconds at times to um, attach a, the ENI for a VPC to a Lambda function. Then all of a sudden, AWS rolls out this feature that uh, they've totally redone under the hood how Lambda is connected to VPCs. You know, do the majority. Of- Lambda functions need to connect into VPCs? And was that a reason to spend all this engineering time to make it way faster, which it is today? Probably not. But what it does is now it moves a whole class of problems onto the table where before you had your devs and your engineering team walking away from it saying, nope, can't consider that because I got to talk back to the data center and my, I don't have time to wait for you know my VPC to connect to Lambda. So AWS uh, took the time to fix that to make it way better. It's not perfect now, but it's, it's now that conversation's back on the table. And so I, I think that's the easiest thing to do is, uh, you're, you're working on top of abstractions on top of managed services that are getting better without you having to do anything about them. Um, and so, you know, convincing people that, Hey, you may, you're making a choice to adopt this service, even though it's not perfect right now, but look at how it gets better, you know? It, it's kind of almost like a violation of the second law of thermodynamics, a violation of entropy. Whereas normally, I'd expect once I push code to production, once I deploy a uh, piece of hardware somewhere, that it immediately starts to decay and the code starts to rot. Here in this case, I am by virtue of my contract with the service provider, they are they are uh, continually updating that. Similar thing with DynamoDB, right? Where they rolled out adaptive capacity recently, every DynamoDB uh, customer in the world all of a sudden had faster performance, and and fewer problems with hotkeys. They didn't have to make any changes other than you know, potentially um, tweaking a service setting if they want to go to uh, paper request versus provision capacity, which was another thing that rolled out under the hood without you having to do anything about it. It's really neat to see those things happen. And I think that's a great way to reopen that conversation with your skeptics. Like, yeah, this is an 80% decision now, but you're not hedging against problems in the future. If anything, you're leaving the door open for more good things to happen to you. And that's not the way IT traditionally has gone.
1: So you know you're an Amazon hero. So I don't know if you talk about GCP or Azure. <laughs> I mean, I, I can. I'm, I'm not. I'm not opposed to it.
2: I'm just going to sound stupid because I'm not that familiar with them.
1: Well, you know, because we are, you know, very multi-cloud focused here at the Cloud Pod and on TCP Talks, etc. We we always like to ask people, you know, what's your, a, how do you think about multi-cloud and how do you approach it, especially as from a cloud architecture perspective, mm-hmm. and what are some of the things um, you, you think about in the industry when you think about multi-cloud.
2: It's a really interesting question, and we're about to release a report at A Cloud Guru that will go into much more detail on this. We've been spelunking into a lot of our platform data because we're also multi-cloud and you know have a lot of GCP and Azure uh, uh, content available. And so we're, we're very curious, not just about what people say they're interested in, but what people are actually doing and, and what they care about. And what we've seen is AWS obviously continues to lead the pack by a wide margin in terms of, of adoption, but uh, Azure increase especially has rapidly grown over the past uh, 12 to 18 months. I, I think the numbers that I'm seeing from our internal data is something like an 800% increase year over year in terms of the amount of training time people are spending on Azure versus last year. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of qualifiers you can put around that. Um, but it's important to note, we're not seeing that with GCP. GCP is continuing that slow, gentle curve up. Um, you know. But uh, Azure is a total hockey stick, and it's not going away.
1: I think we see that in the revenue numbers too for the three cloud providers. You know, Azure continues to grow at a pretty aggressive clip, where Amazon's starting to kind of plateau a little bit, just because they have market. You know, the, the yeah. leader in the market. That's what happens to you. Uh, and then GCP, you know, I think still has a lot of gotchas. I think people are nervous about GCP. I mean, there's a whole Twitter account dedicated to nothing but you know, killed by Google. Uh, and there's a couple of great blog posts recently about you know them not thinking about platform and long term uh, capabilities of their services. So. I think a lot of people are still nervous about Google in a big way, and I think they're probably a couple of years from the to that hockey stick uh, where they have a large adoption. And I think, you know, outside of Kubernetes and outside of machine learning AI, I think they lack a lot of the primitives that you need in other clouds that they have.
2: Yeah, and I, I would add some of their data services into that mix that are just really best in class from what I understand, but I think you're absolutely right.
1: So one of the uh, one of the fun things that you do is the uh, funny as a service comics, oh, yes. which has now led into apparently a book, the Read Aloud Cloud, <laughs> or maybe they're unrelated, but they seem to be related because they're both artistic. Uh, yeah, so I'll I'll caveat that way. But what's uh you know where did the comment come from, and then how how does this relate to the book? And you know, let's talk about the book a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I've been I've been drawing for a long time. It was a way for me to blow off steam back when I was sitting between you know cubicle walls. Uh, I, right now, that seems like it might be a nice change of pace. But uh, uh, there there was a time when you know I, I uh, was was drawing and I was like uh, drawing with a sharpie marker and scanning things in on the office printer, um, drawing these little cartoons about about tech and office life. And eventually, that that Kind of exploded into a uh, webcomic that was called Faz and Furious FAAS uh, for a long time um, and, uh, ran that at a cloud guru. And now we've, we've just relaunched that as, as ace of clouds and it'll be, um, it'll be twice weekly and it'll have sort of some recurring characters. And I, I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Check that out if you, if you haven't seen it already, but, uh, that, that has sort of transitioned into a book project as well. The book is, um, it is out now you can, you can order it. It's a, a sort of, as I speak, it's a few days away from being on store shelves, but, uh, if you, if you place an order now, they'll, they'll put it in the mail for you. Um, and, uh, it's, it's out from Wiley publishing. It's called the read aloud cloud An innocence guide to the tech inside. And what it is, is a overview of cloud computing that you can share with not only yourself and your technical friends, you'll all get a chuckle out of it, but you can share it with your non-technical friend or family member as well. And they'll hopefully finally understand what your job is, what it is that you do. There's little explainers in there for jobs like cloud engineer and cloud architect and network engineer, and it's all drawn with cartoons. There's little rhymes, there's little prose sections at the end of the chapter that expand on things. And it takes you from back in the mainframe days, all the way up to modern concerns around, you know, IoT and data privacy and it talks about cloud resilience and uh, the magic of cloud with elasticity. So really excited about it. It's, it's just the nerdiest, geekiest thing you've ever seen in your life. Um, I, I have a physical copy in my hands as of yesterday. I'm, I'm really happy about it. Uh, and so I, I hope you'll check it out. I, I think you'll really enjoy it.
1: I think I, I think I pre-ordered it, I'm pretty sure. So hopefully it'll show up awesome. in the mail in the next one. Well, it'll, it should be in the mail any day then. Yeah, so definitely, uh, I think I, I hopped on the bandwagon when you were you were offering caricatures. If you there, offered. you go. I, well, not that I, I wanted a caricature, but not, yeah. <laughs> not that you wanted
2: a caricature. There you go.
1: <laughs> but but I, it's always fun to do those kind of things and support the community. And you know, the Twitter uh, AWS community or really the cloud community now as a whole has gotten you know it's getting bigger. It's been more diverse, which is fantastic. And I really love engaging with the Twitter cloud uh, teams out there. And you know, you're one of the main people I've been following for a long time. I I talked about going up to that event up in Seattle and saying you know it was kind of like. As in, you know, celebrity zone where all these people I know from Twitter are there and talking and, and all that great stuff. And you know, Ben Kehoe and you, as well as many others, uh, you know, Eric Hammond. Yeah, yeah, so it's just it's always fun uh, to engage with the Twitter community. That's why I bought the book. To be honest, it's just fun to do and support <laughs> you know support the cloud community that's in Twitter.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, well, it's it's a great community. It has grown a lot. It's great to see even the service providers that are so involved and engaged there. If you're listening to this and you're and you're not on Twitter, um, I, I do recommend it as long as you can find a good boundary to keep yourself sane. Um, it's done a lot for my career and for a lot of other people's as well because there's really no better way, especially now, to meet people and, and make solid connections that will have professional value for you.
1: Yeah, definitely be, uh, be vigorous with that block button. Yeah, <laughs> Otherwise, you, know. you get into parts of Twitter you don't really want to be in. <laughs> Well, great. Well, if people want to follow you on Twitter or, you know, say abreast of your books or your comics, how do they find you? How do they find you on the Internet? It's a big sure. Place. Well,
2: you can always follow me on Twitter at Forest Brazil. I'm, I'm active there and love to meet and talk to people. My DMs are open and shall remain so until I get hounded into closing them. Um, <laughs> in addition to that, I do uh, maintain a semi-regular newsletter. And I say semi-regular because it's called The Cloud Irregular. And I publish it when I can, usually every month or so. And you can find that and sign up for it at Brazil. Dot com. That's the best way to get uh, updates on, on what's happening, as well as a lot of my writing, uh, which uh, appears mostly at A Cloud Guru, but occasionally in print form.
1: Definitely uh, check out A Cloud Guru if you have not as well. They did uh, recently go through an acquisition where they bought uh, Linux Academy, correct? Uh, yes, that's exactly a, a, right. A much, much larger amount of content. It's amazing. Uh, the same dollars you paid for your old A Cloud Guru account now have much, much more to uh, you. Yeah. All things Linux or AWS, Azure, Azure. And many, many more. So do check it out. It's uh, been quite, Definitely quite advantageous. Do.
2: Yep, not just content, but also the also the features, the uh, the Cloud Playground and, and things like that. There's a lot of neat stuff on the platform.
1: Yeah, I was super excited when you guys added the, the Playground feature. That yeah. was great. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after Quick Labs got bought by Google. It was like, oh, yep. this is never going to get any improvements now, <laughs> which it hasn't. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it's good to see on the uh, A-Club Guru platform. Well, thank you for joining us. We'd love having you on. And do uh, come back anytime you want to talk about something else. We'd love to have you on again or even join us on the main show. And uh, you can you can make fun of all the announcements that we do uh, <laughs> every week on the main show. So awesome. do join us again.
2: All right. Well, hey, I appreciate that. Hope we get a chance to hang out in, uh, in person sometime, one of these days.
1: Yeah, hopefully someday. You know, I don't know when that will be. But, uh, yeah, definitely love to uh, hang out and, and grab a drink and, and see how it's going.
0: Awesome. Catch you later, guys. Thanks. Visit thecloudpod.net to subscribe to the show, join our Slack channel, or sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find information on reaching our audience through a CloudPod sponsorship opportunity. A big thank you to today's guest, and thank you for listening.